Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross. Welcome to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Jennifer Townsend. Hello. Hey, Jen. Ready for another fun day? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. For those of us, for those of you just joining us, last week we talked with Maddie about her foster care experience, and we're doing a series on foster care and what leads families to coming together. And so we're f- taking that journey on our unique story today with Heather Sake, who is Maddie's adopted mother, and Heather's going to tell us a little bit about her life. Hi, Heather. Hello. How are you doing? I'm great. Are you so excited to be here? We are. All right. So I'm going to start with just some questions for you. Please feel free to jump in, JT, anytime you have some questions, because I will just talk forever. <laughs> uh, and Heather, if you want to expand on anything, of course, this is your, your stage, okay? Great. All right. So can you start by telling me um, what led to you becoming a, a foster parent? What are some of those childhood experiences, or did you have any childhood experiences that led you to being a foster parent? Uh, yeah, actually, my parents and my grandparents both had uh, their own businesses. And in the course of owning their own businesses, my grandparents owned a large dairy farm and my parents owned a construction business. And there were always um, workers that came to be on the farm or came to be working in my parents' business that needed a place to stay. Uh, college kids home for the summer. Um, both of my my nuclear family and my grandparents' family, my mom's Siblings were large families, and they always had foreign exchange students from different countries. And um, my uncles and my brother's friends uh, came and stayed with us. There was there was always more than who should belong in our homes and in my grandparents' homes. So coming from big a big group of people is kind of natural and normal. See, that's us. interesting because I have a big family, and I want to have f- as few children as possible. So uh, <laughs> it's very interesting that that it, for you actually inspired you to take on more kids. So, okay. Uh, so, how did your family growing up and your community culture impact your desire to foster? Uh, my parent, we we grew up in New Hampshire, where my parents own their own construction company, and it was not a super diverse um, part of the country at that time. This was. <clears throat> more than a few years ago. And so it wasn't super, <laughs> the demographic population was not very diverse. And so I remember that when my parents were building, there was an African-American family that moved into town and they were buying a house from my parents. And so by default, their daughter and I ended up being friends. And I remember when she started school, um, people weren't necessarily very nice to her or she was a novelty. It was kind of mm. either mm-hmm. or. And so that was really bothersome to me. Um, because I, she was just a person and she was fun and she was good at playing the same sports as me. And so there was a natural connection for me with her. And then as I watched people treat her not appropriately, that sort of, uh, brought out more of that social justice advocacy piece in me. Um, and so she and I became very good friends and then we were kind of inseparable, uh, after that point. 
Okay, and you said that that brought out your social social justice side. Is there a lot of that in the foster care experience? Are you dealing with a lot of fighting for the rights of kids, families, professionals? Absolutely. So what um, does that look like? Well, it looks different all the time. Okay. Um, every single day is a new adventure in trying to uh, do system improvement or any anytime you're advocating, um, anytime you get a kid in your house, there are specific things related to each case that require... Um, they require your attention and your your knowledge of policy so that you can make sure that the right things happen. Kids in foster care are a voiceless population, and so they tell you what they need or what needs to happen for them based on their behavior, not always so much in very clear-cut words. There are a population of kids that are typically used to not being heard, and so... I view my job as a foster parent to speak for the children that come into my home um, in a way that they are not able to, to make sure that they get what they need and that they have everything that needs to happen to help them overcome any barriers or obstacles or raise up any deficiencies so that they can go forward and become functioning, fully productive members of this, of society. Okay. That sounds commendable, but it also sounds exhausting. Yeah, is it absolutely. exhausting? It is. It's so tiring. Um, but it's <laughs> not. There's not really any other way that is worthy of spending my time. I don't think. Okay, super cool. So you talked about a little bit about that childhood experience and the social justice piece and the family dynamics. What was your young adulthood like? Did that impact your desire to foster as well? Uh, I think it just sort of set me on a path. Tiffany and I remained friends. Um, all the way through high school, and Tiffany then the... Tiffany was the, my friend that I made the African, the only African American girl in my high school. Oh, and so uh, she and I remained friends all okay. the way through high school, and then I went to college as far away from um, my home as I could possibly get within the range that my mom would let me go. Which was which I went. So I went to Syracuse, which is in upstate New York, but was a much okay. more diverse demographic population, okay. um, large athletic school. So it was there that I first got introduced to um, different activist groups. And um, there were, I remember just watching kind of Black Panther groups and LBGTQ groups and trying to figure out like, wow, this is where have I been living this whole time? Right. Um, and then uh, I got involved in student government activities on the college level and um, just became that just sort of set the tone for every place. Everything that was going to happen for the rest of my life about okay. figuring out how to bring people in the back to the front. Do you have any specific experiences that you can talk about during that time of learning what's out there in the world and the different advocacy groups that you can share with us? Anything that really stands out to you that you're like, and that's when I knew <laughs> I would fight for people's <laughs> rights. I think that was set for me along a lot of, a lot of time earlier. Um, okay. My dad, uh, part of what I didn't tell you was that my dad was a Vietnam vet and okay. my dad had had some uh, pretty negative experiences with his um, his platoon in Vietnam. And my he drove a tank, and he had um, men in his group that their job was to be minesweepers. Mm -hmm. And the life expectancy for those young men were was less than three seconds once they got onto the front lines of combat. And so my dad and his one of the guys in his platoon were the only. Caucasian men in their platoon and they drove the tank and everyone else was, this was when the draft was in effect and everyone else was a drafted, um, what, what my dad reported was that everyone else was kind of an inner city 
kid that got drafted and didn't want to be there. Mm. And so he had some poor experiences and lost a lot of um, comrades in arms because of the nature of their um, of their duties there. Mm-hmm. And so when he came home, he had a really difficult time um, reconciling his racial views and his heart with some of the experiences that he had had in Vietnam where people would, he felt put him in jeopardy of safety. And so he kind of, kind of had a latent racist kind of mentality. And so when, when I became friends with Tiffany and she started spending the night at my house and doing things, my dad always had a really different, uh, a different demeanor when she Mm. was around. And so that he and I, he was actually my first, uh, my first advocacy experience. Person, yes, advocacy. <laughs> the person I had to advocate with was against my dad about she's just a person. And this is, I don't I couldn't understand, you know, at 12, 13, 14, I could not wrap my head around why he couldn't, why he didn't like her just based on what she looked like or things that she couldn't control. And so we, we battled that for a long time. Um, he liked her just fine. There was just things about, her that would trigger things in him. Now, as an adult, I look back and understand that more. Um, but I think that's really where that got set. But then it just took off huge when I got to college. And we we advocated for all kinds of stuff, like better toilet paper in the residence hall <laughs> and how to have more voice in student groups. It was, yeah. um, it was very exhilarating and powerful to be able to get people to come together for a common cause and voice a concern and get it to change. That was a, a great... Uh, passion developer there. Okay. Uh, so if my own family, my mom, who is the president and CEO of Foster Adopt Connect, when she goes and talks about her experiences, people often assume that she's the only person. that She's a single mother taking on all these ridiculous children and things like that. Um, and I have to remind people, I, I, my dad is in the picture. I promise he's there. Uh, is, is that experience true for you? Is there a Mr. Sake out in the world? Yes, he's involved. He um, he is actually probably, of the two of us, a stronger advocate now than when we started. But he um, he has a degree in computer science and math, and he's an analytics manager. So the gray world of social work is... Yeah, um, just you saying that made my head hurt. I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, it does lots of things on spreadsheets with numbers, and it's very boring to me but he um he also is a person that believes very strongly in the rules and the policies and if they exist then they should be enforced and followed and so it makes him a great asset for the kids that live in our house because there's not really a chance that any kid that comes into our house or anyone that comes to robbie for any help with advocacy are gonna miss uh like he knows the rule and he makes sure that it's followed we've actually had to teach um some new workers about some of the rules which they don't always appreciate but it, we do feel that that's part of the job of being a foster parent is to Absolutely. help with the turnover of workers and teaching them what is important to know all right awesome so i'm very interested interested to hear more about the dynamic duo and how they went about their lives to becoming foster parents. So when we come back from break, I'd be very interested to hear, how'd you guys get started? Did you just pick them up on the street and say, hey, we're going to foster, baby? Uh, So what that story looked like, we'll hear more about when we return from our quick commercial break. You're listening to Fostering Hope, and you can connect with us on our Facebook page or at www.fosteradopt.org.
Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I'm Nathan with Foster Adopt Connect with my co-host Jennifer Townsend. Hi, Jen. Hi. Uh, we were talking with Heather Sake about her early experiences and what led to her becoming a foster parent prior to break. So we're going to pick back up with that conversation, and we're talking about the great Mr. Sake. So can you tell us, when did you guys meet? What did that look like? What was the courtship? One of all your, your gossip. Oh, my gosh. There's not much gossip. We're so old now. It's been a long time. Um, Robbie and I met when we were working at the University of Missouri in Columbia, and I was his boss. He was a senior, and I was working on some post-secondary education work. Ooh. And, yeah, it was fun. Um, <laughs> he was graduating. and then Wait, who pursued who? Can I just know that? He pursued me, oh. but I was not aware of it because I'm kind of clueless about that <laughs> stuff. Um, and so he pursued me, and then the next thing I knew, we'd been on three dates, and I didn't even know we had been on them. So uh, it, was a fun, it was a fun time. That's sort of how our whole life has gone, <laughs> is that one of us is always behind the curve now. <laughs> Um, so then we moved up here to Kansas City, and he began working at Sprint, and um, I was working at the Division of Youth Services at the time, and I really liked that job. It was um, working with kids and helping kids that had kind of been, uh, they had been, not kind of, they had been adjudicated by the system for committing crimes. What and does that mean? Uh, the, the, they had committed a crime, a violent crime against a person or property, and then the court had sentenced them to... Uh, like a kitty jail kind okay. of process. And so kids would have a, a certain length of time they'd have to stay or they'd have to do a certain amount of therapy work or treatment okay. to be able to be released back into society. So it was a court-driven process. Okay. Um, and those kids were, um, I worked with a boys group and a girls group and uh, preferred working with the boys group. The girls were um, very dramatic and there was lots of crying and I much prefer the boys who could mm-hmm. kind of battle it out but when mm-hmm. they would work through the issues they would really be uh, it was more interesting to draw out the feelings in the boys and help them connect to that stuff and I that was hard work it was great I totally love that job but you have to I think it would only work when I was young because it was super intense and very physical um, and very heart heart wrenching heart grabbing mm-hmm. and what happened was that there would be some kids I think by the time I was on my fourth funeral, what would happen is we would we would do all the work and we would help them get it together and they would get excited about going home. But there had been no work back in the family home where the kid was returning to or in mm-hmm. the neighborhood or the community where the kid mm-hmm. was being returned to. And so what would happen is the kid would go right back to whatever their ways were prior to coming mm-hmm. into. Sometimes they would make it for a few months or they, they would try to do the right things, but eventually the allure of the setting would bring them back to the decisions they were making. And so when I went to the, my fourth funeral of kids that had spent a very long time with us and had really had good hope and um, good prospects for their future, when I went to the fourth funeral, I said, okay, I'm on the wrong, I'm on the wrong end of this. I'm getting them when they're, when it's too late, this is mm-hmm. hard. I want to go to the, want to go to the other end where maybe we can catch them before Mm -hmm. they end up in a place where they're kind of resigned to what their future looks like, which is more um, imprisonment, more incarceration, more court involvement. And so we went to a place called um, Drum Farm, which is in Independence. And it is it was a group home that was started back in the 1800s for kids that were homeless or indigent through no fault of their own. So they couldn't be kids that were in trouble, which is now how we define kids that are in foster care. But back in the 1800s, when that place was established, that foster care didn't exist yet. Okay. 
Um, and so kids that are in foster care live there and Robbie and I had to move in there. So that was a big, uh, talking job of getting Robbie to, um, move in with, <laughs> move in with eight teenage boys into a group home where we would live in a, we, we had a house, but we gave up our house and moved into this one bedroom and then furnished this house for eight teenage boys that we didn't know. But he is a really great sport and followed me along over into it and continually kind of like was shaking his head and rolling his eyes like <laughs> for the first year because he kept saying, I don't, what is, what is this? What are we doing here? And, we had these 18 inch boys and they were great. We did great stuff. We went on trips and we fundraised and we had a great time. And it was uh, probably the first, that's who we consider our first family mm-hmm. was those 18 age boys that we, uh, that kind of indoctrinated us into the whole live in, have a ready-made family process. Um, while we were there, we got licensed privately to do foster care. So in our one little our private living space that was Mm -hmm. with inside this group home. We got licensed to be able to foster younger kids because we had older kids out on the, in the group home. We like, they licensed us to do younger kids. What does privately mean? Um, private was like the area where the kids didn't get to live. You have to have a a residence, uh, that meets certain licensing standards to be able to get licensed. So we got licensed through the state. We were working at an agency that served foster kids, but then we became licensed foster parents. So we worked with the boys for two years before we actually became officially licensed ourselves to be foster parents. And so, um, part of what we did while we were at drum, one of the reasons that was better for me to go to drum and leave DYS was that we had also been working on infertility treatments for several years and needed to have a more regular, less stressful job so that we could be successful with um, having, trying to have a baby of our own. And so we did, uh, I think we did infertility stuff for about eight, the first eight years that we were married. So part of that was after we were fostering and part of it was before. Okay. I just want to highlight that you just said that having a group home with eight teenage boys was the less stressful option yeah. <laughs> between these two options. I just want to really highlight that because yeah. for most you, people, you, that doesn't sound not stressful. <laughs> it's fun, actually. Teenage, I love teenage boys, like not in a weird way, but I love teenage <laughs> boys because they are, they're really quick to tell you what they think and what they want. And they're not, um, to get a teenage boy to go from being rebellious and stubborn and dug in into being compliant and, wanting your attention and affection in a positive way is uh, is really super rewarding for me. Um, it would be the population of choice if I got to pick anything in social services that I would do. I would always be serving older boy populations. As a, as a former DYS employee myself, uh, it was an amazing job. I love those years, but I know exactly where you're coming from. It, it It's a lot. It's a lot on the employees. So, yeah. Yep, it sure was. And so I, I know we have to go to break here in a, in a minute or so, but I just wanted to start the conversation on what were your expectations when you first started fostering and having this group home? What did you think was going to happen? You know, I'd, I'd wish I knew then what I know now because my <laughs> expectations were really unrealistic and very, um, very broad, actually. We just really wanted to have, we had been struggling with infertility for a number of years and living with the boys was kind of like how we got to have what everybody else gets to have naturally. Mm-hmm. And so 
we were all in and it was about making those boys our family and giving them experiences and love and a life that they otherwise wouldn't get to have. And there really wasn't any holds barred on how fast we fell in love with them and made them our, made them ours and claimed them as ours. And so um, that has really set the tone for how it works for us with any kid that comes into our home now is that we go into it knowing that at some point there's going to be a heartbreak or a risk uh, that a kid isn't going to reciprocate or a kid's going to go home. But we never really regret pouring every pouring all into a kid uh, because in that moment in time or in that time that they're with us, that may be uh, the best that they have it for any given time. That's very interesting. And that really brings up our, our next segment. When we come back, I want to talk about that piece of what does it feel like to give love and give all your affection to kids and then have that either not reciprocated or they go back home. So thank you for leading into that. We'll be back with more Fostering Hope on KMBZ. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I'm your host, Nathan Ross, here with my co-host, Jennifer Townsend. Hi, Jen. Yo. We've been talking with Miss Heather Sake about her experiences as a foster parent with her husband, Rob, prior to Maddie, who you heard last week, coming into their home. Welcome back, Heather. Thank you. Um, before break, you were talking about the really the beginnings of you becoming a foster parent and talked a little bit about that loss and investing in children and things before um, and then having them either go home or not reciprocate. And so I just wanted to get some more information from you about what were those early years like? Um, and did that lead to just fostering? Were there, was there adoption? And if so, what kind of were all the factors that led into um, your life experience as a parent prior to Maddie coming into your home? Well, we were, we were fostering, we were running the group home for the teenage boys and then we were fostering some little kids um, in our, in our house in, within the group home. And um, I think our thought in getting licensed was that we would eventually be able to adopt one or two kids and then go on with our life and ride off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> they put you through, you have to, the state of Missouri requires that you do a lot of training. There's 27 hours of pre-service training oh, wow. that uh, they think should make you ready to handle whatever <laughs> comes your way, but it really doesn't. It's really more of a screener. Uh, like, so you can kind of understand what you're getting into, but then the rest of fostering is really on the job training. Like, so people could tell me, yeah, uh, what, what might happen when kids came into my house. And then it was totally not that when they actually showed up. And so you have to be prepared for whatever might happen and be ready for the adventure whenever a new kid shows up. And honestly, every new kid that comes to your house or that comes to live with you, um, if you are open to it, can teach you a lot of new things about people and human nature um, and about, about yourself, about how you want to relate to kids or how you want to be seen. Um, and what's become clear over time is that fostering is all about relationships. It's about mm-hmm. relationships with caseworkers, relationships with birth families, relationships with kids, obviously, uh, relationships within your own family. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those get tested and pushed in different directions when mm-hmm. you, whenever you add a new dynamic or a new kid 
into the into your home into your home and so i know we've talked a lot about fostering and adoption and i just want to make sure that i get this right so fostering is temporary right with the idea that the kids are going to go back to birth family or similar is that yes, correct and yes. whereas adoption is they're staying with you and they become your forever child as if they were born to you there's right? no givies back when no adoption. givies backs yep, all right no back. so were what was your experience between the two did some kids stay but were there some kids that there were no givies backs and <laughs> how did that work out yeah there's been a few we've had uh, in the last 16 years we've had a hundred right around a hundred kids come through our home and we Yikes. have adopted <laughs> 10 and so um, the numbers in Jackson County, Missouri, are that two out of every three kids will be reunified with their parent. And when a kid comes into foster care, that's the first goal is to reunify a kid back with their parent to get okay. them to go back home. Okay. And part of being a foster parent is being able to wrap your arms around that birth family and help that become a support network for that birth family so that when the kid returns home, a kid mm-hmm. that you and a birth parent both love now, we can try to prevent any further um, injury or harm from happening to the kid wherever the kid ends up living. So if the kid goes home or when the kids go home, um, it's very, it's, it's difficult. And lots of people say that's what keeps them from fostering. But I would tell you that that's not really the hardest part of fostering. It is heartbreaking for sure, but it is not the hardest part of fostering. So when the kid goes home, if you've built a relationship with that parent or the grandparent or whoever's going to be the caregiver of that kid, you never really lose the kid. You just get a different role. So you become an auntie or an extended support for the family and the kid. The kids really can't have too many people that love them and care about them. Right. And so um, I look at it as kind of multiplying what the kid has instead of losing a kid. It's um, every kid that comes into my house will always be one of my kids, even though they are shared with, someone else so mm-hmm. whether they live with me or they live with them they're still always going to have access to to us and to my husband so that we they can have more people that love them i don't know anyone that says gosh i just don't have enough people that love me right you can always right. add community. to your list right so can you talk to us about those kids that stayed or went home and how they directly or indirectly led to maddie coming into your family sure we had um we had adopted four kids before Maddie came to live with us. We had had about 30 kids come through our home um, by the time we found out about Maddie. We had adopted a, a boy named Cody, and he came to live with us shortly after we lost our baby. And honestly, him coming to our house really helped us with our grieving process because we were able to kind of pour into him. We're and then love. after he he was here about 14 months before we got to adopt him. And so once that became secure, mm-hmm. uh, then it be, then our journey became much easier because he met a need for us, which I think is sometimes what people get into fostering for is to meet a need for themselves mm-hmm. while also taking care of the needs of kids and families. And so once that we, that was a mutual beneficial relationship, mm-hmm. then once that happened, then it became a lot simpler for us to go forward so then we adopted a girl, a little girl named Lanessa. She was three when she came and five when she was able to be adopted. And she was a, she's a beautiful little African-American girl. And um, at that time, my dad, when we said we were going to adopt her, my dad decided that he was done. Um, he couldn't understand that we would want to have a blended family. And so he stopped talking to us at that point because we, um, 
we made a choice for a child mm. and he we thought he would kind of reconcile and come around to right. it once he got to see how amazing she was but um he didn't he didn't ever get to come around to that and so okay. uh, that was a hard that was kind of a hard yeah. deal but i've never regretted choosing, choosing a child over um my dad not being able to get over his stuff then mm-hmm. we adopted a five-year-old boy named Danny, who might be the naughtiest kid ever, but he was so, so, so cute. <laughs> had his big dimples and curly hair, and I was in love with him before he even made it in my door. Uh, and he was, <laughs> oh my gosh, so naughty. But So we learned a lot from, Dan- <laughs> from Danny. We learned a lot from Danny. Um, he's 17 now, so we're still learning, learning a, a lot, lot. from yeah. Danny. <laughs> um, and then after that came a, um, a girl named Molly, and she was a baby when she came. And she was, um, she came in the middle of a snowstorm and a worker brought her to me at my work. Like it was like 830 at night and they brought her to me and she was, um, when she came, she was, her clothes were all covered in mold and it was kind of a weird thing to have, to have a baby delivered to you at work. Yeah. Um, it's also kind of unique to get a, an individual baby, um, without siblings or without connections to other Mm -hmm. kids at that point. So it was very interesting and we thought she was just the most amazing baby she was so quiet and she slept through the night and we had six or eight kids in our house at that time and so we thought oh my gosh this baby is amazing yeah. she she sleeps through everything she's outstanding <laughs> come to find out a couple months later that we realized that she was actually hearing impaired and oh, so it wasn't no. really <laughs> it wasn't really that she was an um, amazing sleeper it was that she didn't she hear, anything hear anything to wake her up yeah. Oh, wow. And so okay. we were able to, um, Children's Mercy is an amazing resource for foster parents here in the metro. And she got um, some great services and were hearing aids until she was three. Okay. But when they discovered that she was deaf, that's when her mom said, I don't want to do this for a kid that's not perfect. She's She's got a deformity is what her mom said. Her birth and mom. Her birth mom. And so her mom walked away and so we were able to adopt her earlier than most kids because... Mom abandoned her because she had a, what mom viewed as a flaw. Wow. Wow. Okay. So how did that lead to Maddie? (laughs) Well, Molly, we, so we adopted Molly and things were going on great. And about a year and a half later, they called and they said, uh, the children's division called and said, are you the mom of Molly? And I said, yes. And they said, well, we have her paternal half-sister in custody, and she needs to be adopted. Are you interested? And I had just gotten done teaching a, a class for foster parents and had been on my soapbox about the importance of sibling relationships, and um, I do feel very passionately about sibling relationships. You know, those are the longest connected relationships someone has in their life. So you know your siblings before you meet your spouse, and you usually typically outlive your parents. Mm-hmm. And so that sibling connection is a hugely important deal for me and Robbie, and we are actually very passionate about making sure siblings stay together. Mm-hmm. So I can't really teach that and then not, not do it, not walk the walk that yeah. I'm talking about. <laughs> and so we, um, so I said, yes, I didn't ask how old she was. I oh, didn't wow. ask anything. We had never had a girl over seven because I remember I told you that I really only like to have right, boys. Right. And so a 10 year old girl was like, Ooh, this could be bad. This could be really, this couldn't be not good. Right. And how um, many children did you have in your home when you, when you got this call? I think we had seven or eight, seven oh, or eight, wow. the four that were adopted. And then, um, a sibling group of three, I think is what we had at the time. And did Robbie know that you said yes? <laughs> Robbie, Robbie did not know. Um, he said how yes it, to adopting <laughs> a child and didn't yeah, talk to him. Well, you know, um, <laughs> 
sometimes the way the system works is that you have very fleeting opportunities to uh, commit and they they really like to record your initial response. And so you get a phone call and you answer because that's how it works. And then so three weeks later. I sort of told him, so I said, "Oh, they had set up." I, but I, when I hung up with the lady, I didn't get her name. I didn't. Even, I don't know how to get a hold of her. I didn't know Maddie's name. I was just like, "Well, Molly has a sibling, and she's going to come live with us." And yeah, um, okay, this is not how I recommend that anyone do this, actually. Okay. But good, it good is to know. Disclaimer: how our there. story went. Yeah. <laughs> so then they said they needed us to do some visits and meet her before she moved into our home, and so we. Um, Three weeks later, I took Robbie out. I said, I'm taking him out for a nice dinner. And we drove all the way across town to a McDonald's, which is where we were meeting for a visit. And Robbie's like, we passed seven McDonald's on the way here. And I'm like, well, there's a girl in here that we're going to go meet. And she might be Molly's sister. And we might be going to be adopting her. And then I zipped into McDonald's so that he couldn't kill me in the parking lot. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And I definitely want to hear more about that when we come back from break. You've been listening to Fostering Hope on KMBZ. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am Nathan Ross, the host, here with my co-host, Jennifer Townsend. Hello, Jen. Hey. We've been talking with Miss Heather Sake about her experiences as a foster and adoptive parent with her husband, Robbie, and how she tricked him into their uh, daughter, Maddie, coming into their home. So before break, you were telling us that you ran into a McDonald's telling him, hey, we have a kid coming. Can you talk to us about <laughs> what that experience was like and um, how that developed? Yeah, he was, um, it was very interesting when I like said, there might be a kid in here that we're, we may be adopting. He, by this point in our life, had come to understand that it was just, we were going to kind of roll by the seat of our pants. And so, but this one even caught him off guard. So we met her and there were lots of questions about, you know, like, well, when can she move in mm-hmm. and how is this happening? Because typically what happens, you get a kid placed with you for a foster placement and you work through the system to be able to, determine what the case goals would be. So we'd never had a kid placed with us to be adopted before. And okay. she had, was actually living in a different foster home at the time. Okay. And so we thought, well, must be, we just have to meet her. And then if we like each other, mm-hmm. uh, then she would move in. And that really isn't what ended up happening. Um, it turned into a very big, hot mess sort of. And so why was that? Um, there were lots of politics in play, just like in any system where people people run the system and get to have kind of subjective interpretation or enforcement of rules that uh, sometimes thing decisions get made because mm-hmm. people have a bias or want things to go a certain way. And so Maddie had been placed with a home with some foster parents that were in her school attending area so that she did not have to change schools. And this is a, they were a really nice family. But they'd only had her for about three weeks when mm-hmm. we started doing pre-placement visits. And then they have to do what is called a staffing where they have a meeting and they determine who would be the adoptive resource for the kid. And so we, um, Molly and Maddie, both have a third sibling that has been adopted out of state that has some very significant birth defects. And so the family from out of state and our family were both interested in adopting Maddie because she was a half-sibling to 
both of our kids. Mm -hmm. And so we figured it would just be them and us. And we had a relationship with each other because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And so we had a relationship with each other. And so we both knew we would both be okay with wherever Maddie landed. Um, And then unbeknownst to us, they also put this foster family into the staffing, which was really not how that process should go because they, if you have the option, the law says your siblings should be placed together whenever possible. And if you have two sibling families that are willing to take a kid, then a a stranger family or a mm-hmm. foster family that has no connection previous to the kid and they hadn't had her for an extended period of time shouldn't have been in the in the running for permanency for Maddie. It was great that they wanted to, but it really was not appropriate for them to have been included in the staffing. And so they got in the staffing um, and they the team selected them. Um, four times, actually, we kept appealing the results of the staffing, the family from out of state pulled out of it because they didn't get picked. So it became down to us and the other foster family. And we were very staunchly opposed to siblings not being able to be placed together for, Mm -hmm. for permanency. And so we fought and fought and fought and fought to be able to get Maddie in our home to be able to be selected as her adoptive resource. And so, um, that was it took us about four months of fighting and having to escalate it down to Jefferson city Mm -hmm. before we could get people to make what we thought was the right decision. And Maddie moved into our home, but it did take, we had to get lawyers involved. It was a, it was kind of a, a long protracted deal for a kid that needed permanency. It's it's an awesome thing when you have people that so many people that want to provide permanency, but it should land on the side where siblings should be to stay together. Wow. So you did all of that work, <laughs> fought very hard girl. using those skills you learned as a child and a young adult, and Maddie came to your home. So I know last week, Maddie, you were here and you heard Maddie talk, talking about her story and her memories of what led to her coming to your home. And I know for myself, when I was coming into care and as an adult, I re- the things I thought I remembered were different than what was, what was in my record. So can you talk to us about what that was like? Were the things that Maddie remembered? And did that flow with your memory of how the situation played out for her coming to your home? You know, it was really interesting to listen to her last week because um, it, it was very much a 10-year-old or 8-year-old memory of what was occurring. And I, I remember the team that was working with Maddie, and I recognized then and recognize now again that they were protecting her from a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that Maddie was coming as an adoptive placement instead of a reunification placement was that her dad had been incarcerated, not related to the incident that brought Maddie into care. So Maddie had been physically abused by her dad, like she said, like she reported that part was accurate. She told at school they picked her up. She did move to relative placements and she stayed in relative placements for about a year and a half. Uh, she moved to several different places during that time. None of what, what dad was providing financial support for that while he was working on reunification with her. He was doing visits. He was having as much contact with her as the court orders would allow. Um, and he found, and so he was providing financial support for the relatives because back then they didn't pay relative providers to take care of kids. And so part of the mistreatment that Maddie started to receive was after dad got incarcerated. He saw himself on the news as a person of interest, not a suspect in anything. And he went because he was trying to do the right things. His lawyer advised him to go to the police station and he went down and they did a DNA test on him and they had him as a match for a violent crime against a person. 
and uh, they didn't. He had a two hundred fifty thousand dollar cash only bond, which wasn't in the realm of possibility for him or anyone that he was connected to to get out. So I could see the disconnect between why Maddie thought it was related to her abuse that he went to jail, Mm -hmm. but it really was for a more adult matter that actually was something that had occurred in dad's life prior to Maddie even being born. And so it was a cold case and it was old. um, And I'm sure that at the time that that event occurred, Maddie's dad didn't have any idea what this that would cost him, you know, 10 or 15 years down the road. And so he was in jail and that's when he, they had match and a witness a victim. And they were telling us that he was going to get a minimum of a 15 year sentence. And so that would put Maddie at age 23 by the time dad would even be eligible for parole. And so um, that's why she was, they were looking for an adoptive placement for her instead of working on reunification. And so it was, it was interesting. I remember that Maddie didn't know that when she came to our house. Um, I think she said that she learned that her former foster parent, but I, I think with any, anyone, your memories over time become different. Uh, they become a little shinier, a little happier. And she, she didn't know that information until she came to our house where she okay. um, had some, she had some, we had to work through the team on being able to tell her we thought she needed to know the truth about why she was in care and not feel like she had the power or that she had the responsibility or the guilt or sense of obligation that she was the reason why her dad was not able to be her dad anymore. I don't, I think that's a horrible burden to carry, especially Mm -hmm. for a kid or to, and to carry it into adulthood would have been really damaging to her. Wow. Wow. That is Really complex and sad, but also I think uh, commendable that you and your husband took the effort of telling her, you know, what was going on. And so and that I, you understand why she sees her story that way. I think that would be very difficult to hear for a lot of adoptive parents. Absolutely. And so I thank you so much for for being here today. And I we're out of time, but I really would be very interested in hearing more about those behind the scenes things. But I think we can pick up with that when we talk to you and Maddie next week about your journey together. So thank you both so very much. Uh, you've been listening to Fostering Hope brought to you by Foster Adopt Connect. Uh, to learn more about how to become a foster parent or how you can help vulnerable children in other ways, visit fosteradopt.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>